Welcome to the Someone Somewhere podcast. It's Friday, August 20th, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode 48. This episode is brought to you by Polycultured, our farm resources blog. We create informative content about a variety of topics, including organic agriculture, composting, seed saving, herbalism, permaculture strategies, and more. I'm happy to announce that the Polycultured Pantry is back open and we're looking forward to sharing our farm offerings with you. If you're interested in our products, you can visit our website, www.polyculture.com order. As I have grown as a farmer and an herbalist, I have deepened my relationship with agriculture through practicing it. Farming in different seasons and in different climates has helped me learn so much about the diversity of how life grows on Earth and the myriad of ways that people have been interacting with food in our collective human history. In the modern world, there are certain myths about agriculture that are perpetuated in order to create a false narrative about the history of human progress, to which agriculture is not only a central part, Some argue it is the turning point for many changes in the way human beings decided to live on the planet, live in harmony or discord with other creatures on Earth, and how we started to build settlements that separated ourselves from the natural world. The culmination of the introduction of agriculture to the human species changed us forever, and it is one of the main threads of who we are. In this podcast, I'll be briefly speaking about eight myths about modern agriculture. These are myths that have been commonly coming up in my work, and I've thoughtfully engaged with them, questioning myself and my practices as I try to live as much as I can outside the system of global industrial agriculture. It means I make certain individual decisions differently regarding my consumptive habits, for example, how I grow my own food or purchase it from local farmers, but it also means that I work to encourage more accurate information about closed loop systems that can effectively deal with the change in climate and increasing food and water insecurity. By collectivizing our knowledge and our labor power, we can create communities that are not held back by these myths, which seek to serve the agenda of global agribusiness and dependency on food that is not grown well and doesn't offer us deep nutrition. So each myth is a little bit different, so we'll go ahead and just dive into each one. Let's get started. Myth number one, industrial agriculture feeds the world. Detractors will often bring up that without industrial agriculture, the world would be severely malnourished, and therefore it is a life-saving practice. However, estimates show that industrial agriculture only accounts for 28% of the world's food production but it uses 75% of the world's resources. We have also seen that as industrial agriculture has become the dominant system of agriculture around the world, that global hunger has not decreased, but has instead done the opposite. In 2020, more than 2.3 billion people, or 30% of the global population, lacked year-round access to adequate food, and this is what is known as moderate or severe food insecurity. Additionally, gender inequality with food insecurity has continued to deepen. For every 10 food insecure men, there were 11 food insecure women in 2020. Because industrial agriculture is chemically intensive, fossil fuel intensive, and capital intensive, 
It is by design an inefficient and wasteful system. Not a good combination when combined with global food insecurity for one in three people on earth. So to tackle this myth, we have to look at what is the measurement of what makes a farm productive. In industrial agriculture, this is measured in yield per acre, not overall output. The only input that is taken into account is labor, which is abundant. Natural resources and ecosystems are completely absent from this equation and are already scarce with current levels of ecological destruction and depletion from human intervention. Habitat destruction, poisoning of the waterways, Extinction of key species and other considerations are not factored into the analysis of how productive or unproductive industrial agriculture is. It's always measured with primarily the economic benefit as the measurement. If we account for the true cost, the current industrial system is both resource destructive and resource hungry. You can see how this linear system encourages the need for more land grabbing in order to continue to exploit resources. So what do I mean by land grabbing? This is the process where large, many times multinational corporations are able to influence governments to open up protected lands for industrial agriculture. This is ultimately what is leading to deforestation of the rainforest in the Amazon for the production of soya and in Indonesia for the production of palm oil. This is happening on the African continent as well, continuously displacing indigenous communities, pastoralists, nomadic tribes, and others. The Food and Agriculture Organization, or the FAO, of the United Nations has concluded that industrial agriculture is responsible for 75% of the world's diversity erosion, 75% of water destruction, 75% of land degradation, and 40% of greenhouse gases. This is weighing heavily, not only on the planet's resources themselves, but on the closed-loop, interlocking, interdependent ecological systems that create the fabric of biodiverse life on Earth. This is why we are all so worried about collapse. The word collapse is not hyperbolic. Because of the interconnectedness of these systems and the burden that industrial agriculture has imposed on them, we can see how erosion, water destructions like floods and hurricanes, land degradation, and greenhouse gases are a recipe for disaster. The effects of industrial agriculture on farmers cannot be understated either. The global death toll continues to rise concerning farmer suicide, crushed by the predatory practices of agribusiness and their livelihoods destroyed. Another facet to consider about true farm productivity is what is the end game for these crops? Once you realize that these massive monoculture farms are producing commodities rather than food, your perspective on industrial agriculture changes. For example, most of the corn and soy grown in the world is grown for biofuel and for animal feed, not for feeding hungry human beings. Continuing to develop more and more wild lands for the purpose of industrial monocrop agriculture will only lead to more hunger, not reduce it. And what food is consumed by humans out of that is nutritionally deficient or even potentially toxic. 
So all around the world, we're seeing that this pattern where land is grabbed without the consent of the community by force. Uh, in Brazil, in particular, soybeans and sugarcane production has increased, leading to a collapse of many small farms, and there's a current resistance movement growing there uh, called the Landless Rural Workers Movement, with over one million informal members who are forcefully taking over these large farms in resistance. And so as resistance to industrial agriculture takeover grows, we need to shift away from industrial meat production, also known as factory farming. The reason is similar to the philosophy with other plant monocultures, in that the system itself is a burden on resources, labor, and the ecology. By working with regenerative agriculture systems of livestock management, we can farm livestock in a way that helps sequester carbon in the soil rather than to release it into the air and to continue to contribute to the huge problem of climate change. The livestock instead are a part of a cyclical process where they have ecological value and human health value, where every part of their body returns back to the earth. And connected to the myth that industrial agriculture feeds the world and questioning what product is industrial agriculture really selling, we have to ask ourselves what is happening to our culinary traditions and the ability to cook balanced and nutritional meals. The crisis in losing the skill of preparing, cooking, and preserving is that this has encouraged a reliance on snack, processed, and prepared foods, primarily produced from, you guessed it, the industrial food system. So the devaluation of cooking has gone hand in hand with the dependency on industrial agriculture made foods or food products, which hold you know, much less nutritional value and actively contribute to chronic disease in our population today. So industrial foods have replaced seasonal and local eating, as well as the ability to eat nose to tail or less popular cuts of meat. The loss in all of this is nutrient density, as the soils used to grow crops in the industrial system are stripped of their mineral content, and this makes vegetables, fruits, and animal products that you consume from the industrial system to be, on average, much less nutritious than organic, living soil, and polyculture-grown counterparts. Whether it's through farming plants, raising animals, or properly preserving foods, many people are contributing to a resurgence in regenerative and ethical farming practices. Uh, Nicolette Hahn Neiman and Meredith Lee are a few such authors whose work has focused on the restoration of ecological systems as a central component to their craft. So always remember that although industrial agriculture is held up as the solution for feeding the world, it is actually small farmers who own 25 acres or less who produce over 70% of the world's food. In many places in the world, it is commonplace to have small subsistence gardens with enough summer vegetables for you and your family, along with some staple foods, whether these are fruiting trees with fruits or nuts or ground tubers like yams, cassava, potatoes, and yucca. The second myth is a myth perpetuated about small and or urban farms, and the myth goes that it's too difficult for everyday people to make agriculture somehow a part of their life. So in order to talk about this myth, we have to briefly take a turn into the history of lawns. 
Lawns originated in Europe in the 16th century when French and English castles desired a lack of trees around their property so that they would not be surprised by their enemies. Trees were removed and large pastures of creeping thyme or chamomile were planted and kept maintained by herds of grazing livestock. It took about 100 years for this aesthetic to make its way to other private wealthy landowners and lawns became a symbol of class status. The lawn symbolized that you could afford to maintain it and that you didn't need to use it for subsistence farming vegetable crops. Lawns only became an American thing through European colonization, where settlers brought European grass seed to feed their imported livestock. Early settlers became dependent on imported grass seed and in the process destroyed native grass ecosystems. It took many years for lawns to become a widespread aesthetic, as most people had a flower garden and an enclosed backyard, but the early U.S. presidential gardens at Monticello and Mount Vernon influenced other wealthy people to integrate lawns into their homes. The U.S. Department of Agriculture started to teach people how to establish a lawn, and the building of public parks became commonplace and public parks popularized the idea of a lawn as a place to gather. And thus a front lawn was a friendly statement that your home was a place where your neighbors could gather. This was largely the creation of Frederick Law Olmsted, who was one of the first people to design suburban developments. Uh, and they designed the front lawn into all of their plans. The common thread with lawn history is that it is a symbol for wealth and status. A manicured lawn is a sign that you have enough wealth and resources to devote to a non-productive space, which just wasn't the case for most people in history who have utilized every inch of land available to them for producing their own sustenance. So the story goes, if you can keep up with mowing a lawn and paying someone to apply chemical fertilizers to it and watering it in the height of the summer when there's water shortages, then you absolutely can participate in small farming or urban agriculture instead. Of course, there are other factors which influence our ability to participate in small farming, mainly the stresses of living in the capitalist economy, where you must work for wages and use the wages to maintain your housing, food, medicine, clothing and taking care of your children and other needs. You know, unlike industrial agriculture, there isn't a whole lot of equipment or land required to still grow something. Even the act of composting your food or dropping off your compost at the local community garden is being a part of the closed loop system. As I said before, most people in the world already practice some form of subsistence agriculture, especially in relatively small spaces in pots or in other creative ways, which there are many. Uh, being able to integrate homegrown food into your life starts with the creative spirit, especially right now where we can't just move to a commune together, uh, though I'm sure many people are hoping to. If you start small, you will only continue to grow, whereas if you never try to start, you probably never will. Myth number three is that agriculture needs to be uniform. We've all seen it, you know, images of perfectly manicured industrial farms, pastures of row crops set in with heavy industrial machinery. Everything in the industrial system is organized with industry in mind. Go to any place that nature lives wild and free and you will see that it too is organized, but organized and balanced at the same time. 
Although the industrial system is lauded for its ability to efficiently move food from its growing place to someone's dinner table without compromising the integrity of the fresh food, this is actually another clever tool of those selling it. Everything from the monocrop plants chosen, to the industrial rows, to the tractors and automatic machinery that facilitate the process, this is all about maximizing the efficiency to maximize the profit for these commodities. What gets lost in the mix is that the need to supplement with fertilizer, to use pesticide, to have to use fossil fuels to apply all of it, the nutrient density of the food and the freshness or the ripeness of the food is also compromised because of its uniformity, which makes it much more susceptible to infection, disease, pests, and other inclement weather issues. You know, humans have been eating at least 8,500 types of plant species, and even this estimate is conservative. Most of these plant species were regional and grown because of their ability to thrive in a particular climate. Today, we obviously eat much less diversity than that. In fact, we're largely being encouraged to eat foods made from industrially farmed plants, such as corn and soya in various forms. Uh, cotton and canola are other monocrops that also play a part in the habitat destruction because of how they allow these multinational corporations to collect royalties on all the acreage of these you know, GMO crops that they grow, all the while reducing species diversity. For example, there's over 1,500 species of cotton, and yet the land takeover and monopolization from the industrial food system with cotton has farmers dependent on their GMO variety of cotton year after year. From an ecological standpoint, this will sooner or later cause major issues ecologically, economically, and politically. Diversity is not just useful in nature because it's actually essential to the continuation of sustainable, healthy processes in our human life and in the globe at large. Multinational corporations create seed monopolies, and their reliance on singular types of GMO seeds through these three main avenues that they encourage farmers to get trapped into. The first is through seed replacement, which is essentially where farmers are instructed to give up their regional varieties of seed in favor of the industrial seed. Then they're encouraged by public institutions to stop breeding more diversity of seeds. And lastly, they lock companies and small farms into licensing agreements to use their seed only for various purposes. And this creates indebtedness and dependency and all kinds of other issues. So we must resist the corporate takeover of seeds by predatory seed patenting. Resisting uniformity in agriculture is essential to the health of the ecosystem, which feeds everything in your area, including the area you're choosing to use for agriculture. So we must strengthen our community seed banks and seed networks, making sure that as many farmers as possible have access to open pollinated and heirloom seed that is native to their area and ecologically beneficial. Greater diversity encourages more wildlife as well as bringing bug pressure down so that your plants can thrive. I have one more point about agriculture and resisting uniformity. The next time you have a chance, take a look at your seed packets. On the back, usually there are instructions for planting, and it will tell you how far apart you should space your seed in rows. 
The spacing probably sounds like you need a lot of room in order to grow these plants well. These seed spacing recommendations were developed for the industrial food system and not for your backyard planting. In your home garden or your small farm, you can plant your plants much closer together than the packets are instructing you. Experiment with how you can keep your garden organized, but also keep more of the ground covered at all times with plants. This is done by utilizing much more tight spacing than the recommended spacing on the packets, and it often leads to better soil moisture and better yields. Myth number four is that the burden of agricultural labor is shared equally across the globe. The fact is that it's not. It's not shared equally between the global north and the global south. It's not shared equally between rich countries and poor countries, or even between women and men. So people who have lived their lives in the United States or Europe, they take the industrial food system for granted. You know, as much as I'm critiquing it in this episode, we have always had access to food year round that's imported from various places around the planet. And this comes at the expense of these countries' lands and their workers. And these are places that are suffering from some of the same detrimental environmental effects that were listed earlier in the episode. The area being used for agriculture is only expanding in quote-unquote developing nations or nations that have been ravaged by colonialism, growing 14% between the years 2000 and 2010. These nations are home to roughly 80% of the world's population and harvest 78% of the world's croplands, yet almost all of the world's hungry people live in these places. One could never claim that we are truly addressing global food needs that involve ending poverty and protecting biodiversity if the people who grow the food can't even eat enough for themselves and their families to feed the rest of us. Three quarters of the world's hungry are living in rural areas, according to the International Fund for Agricultural Development. Something is seriously wrong with that picture. Adding to the complications is that cutting down more forests or plowing grasslands to create farms is not an appropriate plan for agricultural expansion. Deforesting these areas only creates more and more problems, first for the land itself and then for the people who are living on it. Walter Rodney mentions this in How Europe Underdeveloped Africa by saying, quote, In some districts, capitalism brought about technological backwardness in agriculture. On the reserves of southern Africa, far too many Africans were crowded onto inadequate land and were forced to engage in intensive farming using techniques that were suitable only to shifting cultivation. In practice, that was a form of technical retrogression because the land yielded less and less and became destroyed in the process. Wherever Africans were hampered in their use of their ancestral lands on a wide-ranging shifting basis, the same negative effect was to be found. How did the industrial food system get to be so inequitable? It goes back to the origins of colonization and the use of force or coercion to obtain natural resources from fertile areas of the world to export them to colonizer countries. This is how there came to be a lack of investment, poor infrastructure, lack of equipment, improper roads and transport, and very unfair trade policies that hurt farmers and leave small growers in poverty and undernourished. If a country can't afford to subsidize their farmers, international trade can often be a burden with no benefits to the small farmer, despite them taking on huge risks. 
Beyond the direct risks of farming, these farmers must contend with natural disasters, political shifts, and war. Particularly in Africa and parts of South Asia, farmers are burdened with the inequity of agricultural production and are a part of what is lost through the system. In contrast, farmers in Eastern Asia and South America have generally better subsidies and more regional food systems that are supported by their governments. Myth number five, industrial agriculture prioritizes food quality and worker safety. It does neither. In fact, many food safe practices can be dangerous. In episode 32, I went in deep on this topic, where we looked at the ways that the industrial food system is unsafe for workers and for consumers. So let's start with food quality and safety. When biodiverse, rich food systems are replaced by industrial monocultures and food becomes commoditized, people will suffer from hunger and malnutrition. If 1 billion people today are not getting enough food, we can estimate that another billion are getting enough calories but not enough nutrition, especially concerning micronutrients and minerals. An additional billion people are weakened and sickened with disease caused from eating too many of these nutrient-deficient and addictive processed foods produced from the system. The conditions within industrial agriculture start with the crop being grown or the animal being raised, and many times neither condition is ideal, where fertilizers and pesticides are needed to control disease or antibiotics are given to animals to keep them from getting sick in crowded feedlots. Then there are all kinds of food safety issues that occur along the processing and distribution channels, too. There's been a rollback on oversight in the inspection of safe food, and as the climate grows more extreme, food distribution with refrigerated trucks will also see issues with contamination. Farm workers also face horrific working conditions, a lack of sanitary facilities to use the bathroom, contaminated or no water supply available in the fields, which in the end leads to more disease and more sickness for farm workers and more contaminated food. Workplace sexual harassment is rampant and punitive forms of coercion are used to control agricultural workers. In processing plants, workplace injuries are common, including very serious ones as a result of working with heavy machinery. Ending industrial agriculture means that we are lobbying for the rights of agricultural workers around the world. They deserve safe drinking water, machine training, bathroom regulations, sexual harassment protection, unionization, and mandatory paid sick leave and maternity leave. In the meantime, we must fight for corporations to be held accountable for violating food safety and workplace safety protections, as well as fighting for the preservation of wild lands and regulations around farm workers' quality of life. Myth number six is that fertilizers, pesticides, and tilling is necessary. This is a huge myth and one that's really responsible for a lot of the nutrient deficiencies, erosion, and all sorts of issues with modern industrial farming. We are currently going down the wrong agricultural path because ultimately it ends with a dead planet and a planet that was harmed from poison and chemical-laden monocultures, which became untenable for farmers to farm safely, and all without ever addressing the global goal of ending food poverty. All of this combined with the larger issues in the climate, and this path is very clearly a dead end. However, we can think outside of this model and find that nature has known what to do all along. By the cessation of fertilizer and pesticide use, and the embracing of no-till farming practices, 
we can heal the land through reintroducing biodiversity and rejuvenating the tired soils by encouraging life to form in them again. This also contributes to the health of the water system and all of the animals and plants that rely on it. Essentially, for the past 100 or so years, we were fed the lie that pesticides and fertilizers were the answer to our problems, that tilling the soil would be the most efficient way to grow your crops. The truth is that we have to use an immense amount of fossil fuels to create fertilizer and pesticide, and then we have to use fossil fuels to apply it to the land, and then we wipe out all the other creatures in this space in order to grow just one type of commodity crop. During World War II, Nitrogen was one of the prime components of TNT and other explosives, and the U.S. government built 10 new plants to supply nitrogen for making bombs. But after the war was over, those plants shifted their business and began producing ammonia for fertilizer. So shortly after, fertilizer use exploded in the United States, and it's now considered a very normal thing to do for your garden. Instead of truly fertilizing the crops, it has instead reduced soil fertility, reduced overall food production, and contributed to desertification, water scarcity, and climate change. So fertilizer is just one example, but many aspects of industrial farming are simply resource-heavy and ultimately destructive. Therefore, they're antithetical to the goals of a functioning, biodiverse farm. By tilling the soil, you disrupt the microbial life underneath, which is the generating engine for your plant's growth. Without living soil, you are going to continue to be dependent on fertilizer and pesticide to maintain good yields. And this system of dependency goes around and around, locking you into it and indebting you, thus making sure a true profit is not possible for the farmer. The myth that these practices were necessary at all was created by the industry trying to sell you a product that you never needed in the first place. With soils tilled and depleted, an essential aspect of farming for the future will be how we remediate these damaged lands and restore them. Similarly, thinking on a small scale, your home compost will be enough to power your plants without ever having to engage with these amendments, and you will see great yields from it. The next myth is that meat equals intensive and vegetables equal non-intensive farming. This isn't necessarily true at all. The first problem is that there is a lot of food production that takes place that is environmentally damaging that has nothing to do with meat. For example, take potato chips. They're one of the most environmentally intensive foods because of the resources that are used to produce, store, process, and manufacture the final product. Accounting for the costs in industrial agriculture is just a bit more complicated than vegetables equal good and meat equals bad. In fact, faux meats, soy-based products, and other processed foods are production and fossil fuel-intensive food product choices. So when we talk about what counts as intensive, we have to think of all of the variables within a product's lifespan, so that includes how it was grown or raised and how it's processed and distributed. We've already touched on how industrial agriculture is a wasteful system by way of destroying nature's capital and society's capital destroying the health of individuals, as well as displacing small regional farmers who keep biodiversity and culture alive. According to David Pimentel, professor of ecology and agricultural sciences at Cornell University, it uses 10 units of energy as input to produce one unit of energy as food. This blurs the lines, making it harder for the consumer to understand which foods are 
highly ecologically destructive, and which foods are beneficial. Palm oil is another good example of a plant food that is contributing to massive displacement, extinction of endangered species, and destruction of their habitat, as well as human rights violations on palm oil plantations. It's not, you know, simply easy enough to cut out animal foods and believe that this has any impact on the conditions of the global food system, because both plant and animal agriculture can be destructive or regenerative depending on how they're produced or raised. This is a huge factor that bleeds into all aspects, including in the nutritional quality of the food, the sustainability of farmers and their culture, and the health of the local ecology. And now the last myth I'm going to touch on today is that animal agriculture is inherently destructive. It very much connects to the last myth about which parts of agriculture are inherently good or bad. So I wanted to talk about the regenerative agriculture model of farming. Grazing animals in the wild have a unique environmental role because grazing fosters the creation of soil, supports microbial life below the ground, prevents erosion by enhancing the soil's ability to hold water, and supports the entire grassland ecosystem at large. Unfortunately, human settlement has caused the destruction of habitat and sometimes even the extinction of these grazing animals. If possible, restoration of wild populations, such as the American bison, can do wonders for plains ecosystems which they were evolved to live on. Otherwise, we can still utilize domesticated grazing animals to play this important role in plains and grasslands, and even some orchards and forests, depending on the breed. The impact of an animal on land can be positive if facilitated and rotated properly. Grass-fed ruminants should be eating a polyculture of native plants, drinking fresh water and breathing fresh air, contributing to a much lower level of disease than the industrial food system. And in addition, we can talk about how the ecological destruction of animal agriculture in the industrial system is measured. Almost half of the 14% that the UN Food and Agriculture Organization originally attributed to emissions from livestock actually comes from the deforestation. So there are so many places in the world where deforestation is not necessary for livestock farming, like the many natural grassland ecosystems in the United States, for example. Destroying forests for livestock or livestock feed is unacceptable and inefficient, and it doesn't understand the position of a grazing animal in an ecosystem. But the idea that cows burping or farting, called enteric fermentation, is the main reason for global warming is absurd, as it's only about 2% and it could further be reduced with good stewardship. And though it's not common knowledge, many animals burp methane, including camels, sheep, bison, elk, deer, and your dog. Studies show that the estimated 75 million American bison belch comparable amounts of greenhouse gases pre-colonization, to the ruminant animals of today. So we have about 40 million cows in comparison, though we must work to bring the number of cows down and increase the intake of diverse types of meats. Now this is not to say that animal agriculture is not destructive, because under the current conditions it absolutely is, but to say that raising animals itself is not inherently destructive, it's rather it's about how we do it. And so, you know, Europe uses seven times the area outside of Europe to produce feed for its factory farms. 
And this is simply not a sustainable system when we could be using alternative regenerative agriculture models that already exist, we already know what they are, and are already being used in practice to reduce the dependency on foreign grain feed and increase the health and quality of the animal foods that are consumed. So we must refute these myths about agriculture because they're getting in the way of us changing our food system as fast as it needs to be changed. To me, an emancipatory political framing for farming is essential if you connect with the earth. So that means prioritizing the autonomy, community interdependence, self-reliance, the shared tools and shared labor, but diverse talent that all the world's farmers have to offer. It means working to end imperialism and capitalism which threaten the lives of indigenous people, driving this food system to commodify food and externalize all of the destructive costs on the environment and our bodies. By reducing its nutritional capacity, it also reduces its usefulness for our future. This is why now all of the times we need to change our lives in the midst of climate chaos that's about to ensue. These food systems will break down when too stressed by environmental conditions, which is something that we should all be aware of. So abolishing industrial agriculture is a big enough task that whether you primarily eat plant-based or you are an omnivore, we can come together to create better agriculture systems. The industrial system is barbaric, making us and the planet sick enforcing our dependence on multinational corporate agribusiness that has no accountability to us or the lands. This is why I encourage you to look deeper than the Netflix documentaries and to learn about the process of regenerative agriculture. It can't be understated how important concepts like globalization, imperialism, and capitalism are intertwined with the way the food system operates to make these companies richer and more in control than ever before of our food supply. We cannot be seduced by consumerism to think that our individual boycotts of a good or product will change the system of agriculture, and we cannot absolve ourselves as not being a part of the problem when it is colonizer nations who reap all of the benefits of this industrial system without having to do the mental tally of what is actually being lost. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, subscribe, and comment to let me know what you think of the show. And this episode is brought to you by Polycultured, our farm resources blog. We bring you info on backyard food production and sustainable living on small plots and in urban areas. And if you enjoy this content, you can support us by going to www.patreon.com polycultured. This concludes episode 48 of the Someone Somewhere podcast. Good night.